HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, Heritage Radio Network podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Grant Reynolds. We'll talk to Grant about his new book, The Wine List, Parcel, Wine, and more. Um, I asked Grant to pull a bottle out to taste. We'll do that towards the end of the show for the weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Hailing from Lake Placid, New York, Grant Reynolds realized it was easier to pursue a career in wine than ski jumping. After college in Boulder, he wound up in the greatest wine incubator at Bobby Stuckey's Frasca. He went on to work in Burgundy, Piedmont, Noma before settling in New York to open Charlie Bird as wine director and partner later opening Parcel Wine, with a few things in between. Grant is the true entrepreneur and believer of wine and e-commerce. He recently opened a new restaurant near Parcel called Tolo. Besides being an awarded sommelier, Grant recently published his second book, The Wine List, Stories and Tasting Notes Behind the World's Most Remarkable Bottles. Welcome to the Great Nation, Grant. <laughs> Thank you. Thank was you that, was you that, nailed it. I, I felt, nailed it. That All right. good. Yeah, All right. So it. we're talking to Grant at Parcel, which is downtown. And this is Chinatown, right? This is or, Chinatown. According to the city, it is Chinatown. So we're in Chinatown. We're sitting in the bar. Obviously, it's not open. Um, all right. Let's get right into it. So you grew up in Lake Placid and you headed to Boulder to college, right? To college, yeah. Did you go there to ski? I did, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up Lake Placid. I always say this to give some perspective. Lake Placid, uh, 
had all uh, all four years of high school, our basketball team lost every single game um, because it was a winter sport. And so if you're <laughs> remotely athletic, you played hockey or skied. So right. um, coming out of the public school in Lake Placid, um, skiing was sort of my only pursuit in life, which led me to Boulder, to, to see you Boulder, um, to, to try to keep the ski thing going, um, which quickly ended and why left me in restaurants. I think ski, I mean, skiing still today, even, even more so it's, it's a very much a young person's sport. And I think Is that by the time you hit like 18 or 19, you kind of know whether there's a, a, probably now by the time you hit 13 or 14, you know, whether there's a, a, a professional future for you. And, and I just didn't, so in Lake I didn't Placid, quite have it, but in Lake Placid, everyone vicariously thinks they're gonna become some kind of pro or something. Oh yeah, and if you're sure. not yeah, that for kid sure. pulled out in eighth grade, yeah, you're yeah. probably done by high yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, it's probably okay. done. So that that's that. But I, you know, I've, I I chose wisely and was lucky to end up in a really beautiful city like Boulder that not only had good access to skiing, but also um, at the time a really exciting restaurant and farm and also cpg just sort of all things food culture that was going on at the time so i really um that was a an so easy transition my oldest kid was there probably a couple of years after you okay um you know so very familiar yeah literally you know with what you were experiencing yeah yeah you know from the food culture to frasca which was an oasis and all that which i want to talk about yeah so you were there for college, probably going your late teens. You know, you come out 20, early 20s. You hung around? Yeah, so I started working. I did was, you start at Frasca at a young age? Or you did I stuff did. In so I started at Frasca uh, right before I turned 21. Wow. And um, I worked at a, another restaurant in Boulder called The Kitchen that actually had a really strong education program. Um, that was about, a musk, was it? The it is, yeah. Kimball, right? Kimball and this, his partner, Hugo, who um, is a really just exceptional chef from, from the River Cafe. And, um, you know, before that, living in Lake Placid, I worked in restaurants my whole life. I have lovely places that are all still open today, um, but didn't necessarily have a wine culture to them. Um, there's now just starting to be a little bit of a, you know, greater wine culture up in Lake Placid, but I'm surprised um, for the most demand month. didn't push it, you know, cause a uh, lot of money there, goes up yeah, there. Yeah, there's actually a, a hotel I worked at while in high school, um, an original Relais Chateau hotel called the Lake Placid Lodge. Um, they also have the point. They're very much sort of the inspiration. Crazy place. Um, crazy points. Crazy. Yeah. That, uh, Blackberry farm took, you know, they were kind of early pioneers of wait, great stop hotels. For are you saying the what the point was doing? Blackberry Farm took that as their inspiration. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I didn't Sam that. Bell, you know, rest in peace. Yeah. Um, I met him at Frosca, and he he told me those words, so I feel as if I can recite them. Wow. But um, yeah, it was a it was a, you know so there I didn't know at the time, but um, have gone back and sort of picked through the old Lake Placid Lodge wine list, which had some good cherries on it over the years so all right so we're we're in we graduated college we're not skiing as much we take a job in our early 20s yeah at frasca yeah take me on a 
chronological line without much detail, because we'll sure. talk about detail, from Frasca to here. To here, yeah. So Frasca, you know, I met Bobby and his wife while I was working in the kitchen. Um, I think, you know, at the time, uh, a guy named Richard Betts was was in Boulder too. Um, Bobby, Richard, also a guy named Brett Zimmerman, um, all master sommeliers, and and frankly, were just easy people to look up to. Uh, both was in- was um, Richard at Frasca? No, Richard wasn't at Frasca. Richard had just moved from um, Aspen to Boulder, okay. and he was starting Sombra. So he wasn't at a restaurant in at the Boulder. Time. Sombra was in Boulder. Yep, I think he probably started it while at the Nell still, but he had you know sort of started some some projects. Right. Richard, I'll give credit, is you know, the one of the the most creative entrepreneurs I think in the, in the wine industry and, and a wonderful guy it was really kind to me early on, but those guys, I was like, Oh cool. There's, you know, these frankly, just good people to be around who are into this wine thing and in easy shoes to follow. And, um, that led me to, to getting a job at Frosca, which I think Bobby gave me a, a chance at a pretty early age. Cause I spoke, I speak Italian um, I, I did a study abroad program in Italy in high school, which kind of, you know, was my in at Frosca without having any right. necessarily wine experience. And Frosca, uh, I was there for a few years, did everything, leaving there as a sommelier, working with uh, a guy named Matthew Mather, who is just one of the smart, great wine minds and hospitable and service and everything just a, a, a wonderful person but um i knew i wanted to get out of boulder i um one of the great things about frosca not only you know from a education standpoint was it's sort of a revolving door of people from other markets coming there uh, so i feel really fortunate in a couple of days i'm going to do a dinner at quince in san francisco uh i first met mike tusk at, at frosca uh my you know now best friend and, and partner in Charlie Bird, Robert Bohr, I met at Frosca. There was all these connections um, that, that came out of Frosca, which made it really easy for me to go other places and you know have a, have a foot in the door, so to speak. So I left Frosca. I um, you know, was 24 at the time, and I worked at Domaine Dujac just picking grapes for a few weeks, which was really fun. That was 2012, a rainy, wet, quick harvest, uh, but a really wonderful experience and made some great friends while there. Uh, Jeremy and Diana and the whole Sess team, but um, also some other people were, were, were there hooked, too. Who hooked that up for you? Um, that probably that came through, through Bobby, yeah. Okay. And, and, uh, and um, you know, just on email with, with Jeremy. Um, and then while there, I really, I sent like a cold email to, uh, Noma just saying, you know, I had done it before I did a study abroad in Rome and worked at Rocholi and sort of my pitch was like, you know, you don't have to pay me, um, but exactly. And, uh, but you know, I want to, I want to, I want to work if you can pay me great, but essentially like feed me and let me taste some wine and, and do it. So I did that at Rocholi for, for a couple of months one summer. And that was sort of, you know, my pitch to, to Noma. Um, and I ended up being at Noma for, gosh, uh, you know, a little over 
two, three months wow. probably. So um, had a really great experience there. Uh, How far along were they? How long were they open? Um, I mean, they were in the old space. A few and, years or more? Yeah, oh, yeah, a few yeah. years for sure. They had already won Best And they didn't pay the you because they were notorious for not paying uh, no, They were super generous with they me, were? I got to okay. say. Yeah, I have nothing. I was very much like there for my, uh, you know, I don't think I added anything to the experience of Noma other than maybe right. being a body on the floor, filling up water and, and pouring coffee. But um, it really, you know, the, the wine director at the time, Moss, was you know i i came from at that point a very traditional wine background um bobby you know being adventurous in the regions he represents um but at the time natural wine hadn't really i think matured to the point uh both in terms of what what was accessible here here in the u.s so there's definitely like a lot of stigma around it and i feel like my time at noma really just asking Moss questions and his palate, it gave me a perspective of natural wine to where um, it it wasn't all just like flawed, messed up wine, but really um, I think they were totally on the, on, on the cutting edge of really doing the work of understanding the producers who you would qualify as natural producers, but you know, weren't um, necessarily natural just for, the title of it, but really right. philosophically. And doing that was thing. years ago that was where a long, long the time understanding ago. and acceptance is different than now. Yeah, it's much different. And now. quality. And quality. I think, you know, producers. Was it a natural, pretty much only wine list? Oh, uh, fully, fully, yeah. fully. I remember he had like three bottles of Dom Perignon 96 Rosé um, in the cellar that he refused to put on the wine list. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, yeah, it was, That's it was, funny. it was really uh, at that point had converted to be fully, uh, natural and frankly, those wines really made sense with the food right. at the time, which was you know at that point they were full on into uh, Nordic ingredients and foraging cuisines. and yeah uh, exactly. But so that was that. That was just a, a fun short stint. I thought about staying there, um, but I was broke and like really really broke. And um, my family's from New York. My my dad. Um, and so I, I came back around the holidays, there was a closure and, um, through Bobby had, uh, connected with Robert, ran into Robert Dujak, et cetera, and just said, Hey, I'm in New York. And at the time, Robert very much was, and, um, who I got to know later, Ned Benedict, rest in peace. For me, they were, they, they were the connectors of many, many restaurants to, uh, wine directors and two sommeliers, meaning I feel like they were sort of... They were both two restaurants. I mean, didn't No, Ned they work? didn't have... They weren't in restaurants no, no, at the time. No, but did Ned work at like Boulay? Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. And, uh, so Robert I think was at they, Many, many people yeah. um, got the jobs that they got through Ned and Robert saying, mm-hmm. hey, this is a good person and, and do it. So I knew he was the, the guy to call. And at the time I was interviewing in... Um, at restaurants that weren't like Charlie Bird. So the three places were at the time, per se, Danielle and 11 Madison Park. And Robert, you know, said, hey, this is a totally different direction, um, but the uh, I'm, I'm opening up a restaurant and we'll be open in, in a few months. If you want to, um, you know, help me do that, then that opportunity is there for you. I'll keep you busy in the meantime. And um, 
I had become really close and still am with Rajat Parr, who uh, I knew he was in he was in Boulder a lot at the time, doing different wine dinners, and he's just a, you know an old friend of Bobby's, so I got to know him, and he he was really someone who. I really confided in, in terms of, Hey, what should I do? I just want to taste wine, et cetera. And he was like, cool. If you want to taste wine, you got to be in New York. Um, and you, you know, that's like, you just need to taste old wine. And the only place to really get access to old wine in America at the time was New York, um, San Francisco a little bit too at the point. But so I was like, okay, that's what you say. I'm going to, you know, New York's really easy for me to go to. And so I ended up in New York and, and, um, was right Ra- place, right time. Wait, Charlie was Raj Br- Somming then, or he was beat? Uh, RN seventy four was still open. Okay, um, but Raj uh, was was doing both winemaking and right. and uh, RN was still open. But so you come to Charlie. So Bird. I come to Charlie Bird. That's uh, two thousand thirteen. Charlie Bird open, and um, I have never left New York since. Or what? Two thousand twenty-four now. So, um, the yeah. The, so you do the Charlie Bird so. like head down hard. Head down hard. Yeah, we worked really, years really worked hard. You guys open a few other places. You yeah, get involved so we went or no? Charlie Bird, uh, and then we did Pasquale Jones, and then after that we did Legacy? a restaurant called Legacy Records. Were you involved? I was involved. Yeah. Okay. So was Arvid around then? Arvid was. So Arvid really came. Um, over from Europe, Robert is a very convincing person, but he, uh, uh, you know, Arvid, um, came, he worked with us at Charlie Bird for a little while. And the idea was that he would come and be our partner and really oversee legacy records. And, uh, of course, giant restaurants take time. So he ended up being at Charlie Bird for a little bit longer. The fact that he won best sommelier in the world, while uh, someone had Charlie Bird still cracks me up. Charlie Bird cannot take any credit for his hard work because <laughs> he, he he had done all of that before he before he showed up. But um, I think it was a good you know a, a very fun easy place to work. And you know back then a lot of great wine was rolling through the door. So Arvid, um, yeah. And then when does um so you get Legacy open. So you get Legacy this open. big, you know, space. Giant upstairs. space, yeah. But you, there's also a retail store. Exactly. By the so, same name of where we're sitting. How yeah, does exactly. that come about? Yeah, so, um, you know, Legacy was is in a new building. Um, way west in the way in Midtown. Way west, 38th. I, I drove by it today, well, dropping my car off to be serviced. <laughs> um, and the in this huge, call it 15,000 square foot, development that we are a part of it was a, it's much you know much much larger building but we had two floors that we were really a part of um both in terms of and you know we worked on it for years before it opened the um idea was there was you know sort of activations from a food and beverage standpoint throughout this whole space but there was this one little corner that they had blocked off for uh an independent retail lease and so, um, you know, we said, Hey, I'll, I'll take that and try to get a retail license. It's a tiny space. It's 200 square feet. You need retail and liquor license or they're the same? Uh, retail license is what allows people to come in and take a bottle and leave. 
from it from Fallen a restaurant all, or no, in general no from a from a from a wine shop liquor shop okay. etc it's really hard to acquire a new one um and so our concession was that we're only gonna, we're only serving wine we're only going to sell wine and um that was a pretty easy case for us to make given our our background and and so we got a retail license there and um through ned i met knew her but met uh christine collado who I still know. works with us she's been um, on today the show. so she was very much the wait she still works with you yeah 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 i thought she's out in uh no, she's in Brooklyn, right? She lives in Brooklyn. Yeah, but yeah. I'm she's, thinking, she's she's yeah. here. I was on the phone with her first right, thing. Right. I'm the, thinking first thing else. Monday morning. Yeah. She's my been on first the show. My first phone call. She's yeah, she's the best. But she um, through Ned actually, uh, she was leaving Brooklyn Fair and looking to do something not in restaurants, and and so um, she came on to to help us open up Parcel, and. Um, because it was such a small space, our vision from day one was always to be a primary delivery service. Um, I had no idea like what it would take to do that and how hard it would be to, to get it going. But um, we started that and that was, and we really, really got the ball, ball rolling in, in call it, you know, January, 2019. And then, um, you know, at the time, Wait, you said delivery? You looked at it as a place to well, we build was, up, to shoot wine out, than to rely on walk-in. Exactly. And I mentioned in the intro, you know, e-commerce is yep. something you embraced. Was that part of the... Yeah, it was a big know, part of it. And the reason was, was, you know, the neighborhood's still today really challenging from a, from a foot traffic standpoint. Um, and so we knew that, hey, we're, you know, let's sort of bring the wine to people, which very much existed. You know, wine shops have been delivering, but um, we knew that we had to build a, you know, a, a, a business model that that was the primary <coughs> source for. So what is that? Is it an online site? Yeah. Is it capturing email? So it's online I mean, site. how are you? It's a lot of, you know, uh, email marketing, a lot of one-to-one sales. So, a regular who we know what they like and they can hit us up and um but it really started out as a yeah website so the idea was website we had a very early partnership with caviar which we no longer have but we were uh very much their sort of pilot for alcohol delivery um and then they got acquired and we got kicked to the side thank you square but the um the uh yeah, the idea of it was to be an e-commerce, you know, delivery wine service. So. so when you say delivery, you were talking about servicing that kind of interesting, tough residential neighborhood. Although yeah, you know, in the we wanted we were ambitious. Yards. Yeah, exactly. We were ambitious. We wanted to service a lot of places, so the van would Run go out across town. Exactly, and you know, um, we had a whole bunch of ideas in terms of how to how to get wine to people on demand, so to speak. But now we ship and deliver um, almost everywhere nationally. And it is, um, yeah, it's been going great. So, so. a couple of interesting things sure. to me about that. It's a small place. Obviously, you're curating, you know, a very 
specific selection? Yeah. Are you providing your customers with access to stuff that other people weren't getting? You know, yeah. Robert has or Grand Crew has connections, you know, or clients and a lot of people. Oh, sure. Have. Yeah. I mean, we're, we buy I mean, from all the wholesalers. We buy from, um, you know, because it, I think it started out as a small space. Again, we were like kind of really trying to lean into not having everything for everyone, but having a right. almost like a wine list approach of, hey, here's our sort of seasonal selection of what we do have. And this is what we're excited about. Um, and so we still do that. You know, we we definitely have a, a point of view. We don't have anything and everything and all the wines that a, maybe a traditional retailer might have. Um, so but you don't have to and you can't. Yeah, you don't have to, I think. And that's that's just our, you know, that's what we so do. So the business so. primarily is shipping online? Shipping online, yeah. And, um, you know, I think we were really all over fortunate. The now? All over the country. We were really fortunate when COVID did happen to have right. the delivery infrastructure and have a website. It, and was, it was up and running. By we were we were already up and running. We had a team. We were ready to go. So, um, did winemakers like not specifically, but take a guy like Raj Parr who's making wine sure. or something? He says, "Listen, no restaurants are buying. You know, can we push some of this in?" And you did yeah. that happen? Or yeah, I mean, I think the. My understanding is this, is that there was sort of a, uh, there's of course this terrible time of which nobody knew what was going on, right? right. And um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, the majority of winemakers would rather see their wine in a restaurant than their wine on a retail shelf. Um, why? Because a restaurant, you have, in theory, somebody representing it and it's being serviced well and and all these things right but there, there's also just a very long-standing tradition of winemakers to restaurants so so i think what happened is um retail really took off restaurants obviously quieted down and i think there you know from what my understanding is and i don't have any like data to to back this up is that it was a pretty even balance for winemakers for wholesalers um to really be able to to keep depletions going in the same way that they they had before i think right. probably not for everyone right. but They're i think for, right. for the right people more people were drinking at home during covid etc now that has kind of course corrected itself right and um restaurants thank I mean, god in new york the are, openings in the last two years are nuts right yeah openings and it's nice it's great it's great it's it's really really great and um the i think you know also <laughs> many importers have have really done great work in terms of supporting producers and finding new producers and doing all that and we're you know really at the mercy of of them being on the ground and and finding new 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 products to, to introduce us to that we then you know, um, sell to consumers. That's what, I, I that's agree with that. I mean, we're not going to name people, but there's more than a handful of people that have been around and have emerged, you know, whether it's German wine, yeah, of or, course. you know, natural and all that are really prominent now and important. 
Yeah. To those regions and to all of that. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's finish the chronological line. You have so, Parcel, we have Parcel, the wine store. We're sitting in Parcel, the yeah, wine exactly. bar. So I, um, you know, ended up leaving Delicious Hospitality Group in 2020, um, just deciding to try to focus my energy on one one business, one thing. Do you retain Parcel, the retail store? I retain Parcel. It's um, I split that off and f- just focus on that. All right. So now we're in the summer of 2020, which is COVID summer. Which is COVID summer, correct? Um, we are super scrappy, trying new things. Delivery in the Hamptons, blah blah blah. We're all over the place, <laughs> but um, the business continues to, you know. Uh, and at this time, I think you know, there was uncertainty with everybody. Right. But the business continues to chug along and and um, pretty excited about it. But I realized that, you know, at this point we were totally digital for for six months. And um, I felt like there was an opportunity for us, given my experience, given Christine's experience, too, to try to do something that is a brick and mortar version of what we want Parcel to be. So we ended up renting this space uh, essentially as a pop-up. And that was, you know, August, early September of 2020, which was an incredible time to be in New York. I'll say the energy was amazing um, and supportive and happy. And it was just a a really special time to be here. We did this pop-up. We called it Parcel. And our whole thing was, hey, you know what? You in a wine shop, legally, you can't, you can't serve wines by the glass. You can't really serve food. You can't, you can't do all these things. Right. And so I was like, Hey, you know what? We really, we really believe wholeheartedly that the best introduction to wine for consumers is in the form of a restaurant. As sommeliers, I think it's the most authentic experience for them to have, um, versus like reading an email, although, we write a lot of emails. We think it's important versus things. reading a book, whatever. But the 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 experience of being well taken care of, sitting down in a restaurant, having a special time with the person across the table from you, and having a great glass of wine, I just believe that cements the uh, quality of, of of wine for people. Agreed. Was um, the pop up here or another? No, the pop up was on Hudson Street. Okay, so we did that, and then. You know, uh, winter of 2020, 2021, COVID got super messy again. So we were lucky to be nimble in that. So we, the pop-up, we were like, you know what? We're not going to do this like indoor half-occupancy thing. We don't need to. It's not really worth our while. We're going to suspend the pop-up for a little while. We did that. And, um, at that's, and then at that time, it really helped us, hey, let's like, now COVID has chilled out a little bit. We have a better sense of, of the business. Let's uh, really focus back on the e-commerce business and see where, where we're going with that um, while looking at spaces to do a permanent version of Parcel where we're sitting today. We ended up renting an office from our current landlord here. He said, hey, it's might be a spot that'll work well for you. Um, it's small. It's 
reasonable. Reasonable. <laughs> it's uh, you can't have full gas though. It can't be a full restaurant. There's limitations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we, you know what? We, we saw the space. You said, this is great. Let's, let's do it. And, um, what year was that? That was towards the end of 2021. Okay. And, um, then we you, took the space over. Do you open in 21 or we you open had in to 22. wait until 22, right? We opened in 22. So we opened in July of 2022 as, uh, the first parcel wine bar, um, which is our version of, tasting room our brick and mortar it's a restaurant it's really just a so this is a good segue and sure i figured you'd be a good guy there's definitely a cool phenomenon going in going on in new york and even the rest of the country now um kind of a new generation of wine bars yeah if you look in new york there's places like claude and four horsemen yep uh newer places place the Wild Air guys just opened Demo, yeah. Flynn, Gem Wine, yeah. um, and you. Um, they have incredible wine. I mean, yeah. you talked about really what the vision is and, ex- and incredible food. Yeah. So, so here's where I'm torn. I mean, is this a wine bar? Is it a restaurant? Yeah, I yeah. know essentially it's both. But, I mean, I think when the Four Horsemen opened, they didn't get the notices for food they're getting now. Yeah. Um, and I think the kid from Gem was a cook, and now he's shifting towards wine and food. Yeah. I, I mean, what's I what mean, are listen, you doing I, here, and what do you think? Yeah, those are all some of my favorite spots I, um, across the board. And I think the reason is is that it's, it's really good food, and there's good wine lists in a setting that is not formal. Right, so if that's what differentiates a wine bar from a restaurant, I'm all for it. Now, I would say I, I think of everything we mentioned. There's no major formality, all, right? Yeah, I think of them yeah. all as, um, frankly, restaurants more so than than wine bars. But I think me the, too. The, the 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 notion of of the wine bar is important for, and I will say, all of us in that group because you want people to come here knowing that it is a place to drink wine. And I think most restaurants today still there's wine is a part of a larger beverage program, right? Now you can get a good cocktail at, at, uh, Claude at four horsemen. Um, I'm not sure at gem, but the, idea of 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 this sort of wine bar restaurant thing is um i think we really struggle with it and people are like so what is it is like it's a wine bar but it's really a restaurant and that is because like saying a tasting room then it feels sort of too educational and at the end of the day we design the space you'll see there's tables that are at dining height that are really easy to have dinner at um, and then there's tables there's, that are. We're, we're sitting at a big table. There's four tops. There's low chairs. Then there's low chairs there's that are like a little bit a, low a wrap around lounge. But on a given night, whatever time you pick, you know, a f- 
yeah. eight, nine is the sweet spot. How many people are sitting there just drinking, you know, by the glass or bottles? And how many people are eating and drinking? Is it's it, about 50-50. So people and are I just think, drinking and yeah, people yeah. are... And I think by calling ourselves a wine bar, it, it allows people to, to have that experience. And that's what we want. But right? they're like coming in, in and Bird, ripping a few good bottles because yeah, they know yeah. what's happening. Yeah, here. yeah. They come in and, you know, have a good bottle of wine and hang out. But I think, you know, there's this sort of unspoken contract between customers and restaurants. And you come in and you have 90 minutes to two hours and you got to order a couple courses and you got to order one. But the, the primary service of that space is food and dining, right? And but, I would, so take a place like Company. You know, it's, it's, it's not much different than this. The kitchen yeah. may even be smaller. I don't know. Maybe, I yeah. mean, is the food there as a revenue point? Is it there to complement the wine? Is it to make it, you know, full circle the experience? You know, when we, I originally didn't want to do any food here. We wanted and and. Then it evolved into like snacks, and I was like, "All right, right. you got it." And then have. we now we're we have a you know totally a full menu. Um, so I think it's you know people will come more frequently if you can have dinner. For us, our ideal experience is somebody you know walks in, has a glass of wine, is enjoying themselves, and is like, "Hey, can I stick around for dinner too?" Order food, yeah, and order food and, and more wine and more wine and, and go from there. So I think that's that's it. And I'm you know I think it's a it's it's good. It's right? a great scene, and there's incredible people doing it. Thank you. Um, Grant, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking to Grant Reynolds. Grant is the proprietor of Parcel, the wine store, Parcel, the restaurant. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about his new book, The Wine List. Um, so we'll be right back. You're listening to The Great Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin Wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Grant Reynolds. Grant, let's talk about the book. Let's talk about the book. Ironically, this is your second book. Your it first is. being How to Drink Wine. You co-wrote it with Chris Stang. Yeah. Chris Stang, Wonderful fairly person. prolific guy, co-founder of Infatuation. Your new book, which I want to talk to you about, is The Wine List. I read you the whole long name at the intro and all that. Um, so to me, it seems like you like to write. I mean, you've I do. written two books in not a long period of time in between. Yeah. Um, you know, it's time consuming. It takes you away from certain things. 
what is it about you know all this nonsense that you have to keep on what is it about writing <laughs> and writing about wine i think you know for me it's it in writing the wine list it was also a way for me to continue reading and researching about wine for myself which i really enjoyed all right so um at a different yeah just looking into older books and you know connecting the dots in a way that i so you jump in and say i'm writing a book now you do what you have to so that gives you a discipline to fulfill your exactly and i think you know i was doing it i i wrote it on the weekend um for a prolonged period of time. How long? My editor listens to this. She'll <laughs> not in agreement that we were, I was, I, I was very late in the delivery of this book, but, um, the, how late is late a year? I don't know. Probably it was a while. More than a year? Uh, no, not more than okay. a year. Definitely not more than a <laughs> year. Right. Definitely not more than a year. There was also, uh, you know, to my credit, a, com- a very compressed timeline, but okay. the, um, the, idea i just so let's like get the writing. vitals out of the way yeah finish that sentence sure. but you know when and why did you decide to write the book yeah I you know after writing another one after that I, um, but you said you like writing i like writing i like doing um just having a hobby doing something creative that is not the restaurant or e-commerce just it's felt like uh, something that I frankly just it, it didn't feel like a chore, but as much as is that time well spent. You're so consumed with this that you don't really have other hobbies that no. you make that a hobby. No, I, I mean, you're other, not. I definitely in, have other hobbies, but I just I I'm not listen, a scratch I'm lucky, golfer. I'm guessing. No, I'm not a scratch golfer. Definitely not. Um, but the I wish I you know kept up with golf, but I I didn't have it in me. But the um, I truthfully, I just like writing. I really like the process of it. I like art. I like design. And so for me, it's a way it to try to bring it all together and learn about it and connect with people professionally that otherwise I, I wouldn't have had the connection to through publishers, through artists, through uh, researchers, a woman named uh, Becky Cooper, who's a really good friend. She wrote, We Keep the Dead Close. Um, she's one of the smartest people I know. She wrote uh, a chunk of the book as well. Uh, the the we'll talk we'll talk timelines, about the etc. But I think for me it was like, hey, if I have the opportunity presented to me to do something like this, um, I would. So when would did like you decide it, so. and why this type of book? So this book, I you know, for me, <laughs> I've part of what I've always loved about wine is beyond the very technical points of winemaking. Um, I really believe there are stories that are either personal to a winemaker or specific to a period of time or you know, relate to a larger cultural shift that I've always found really interesting. And as early as I've been into wine, I've always... I think maybe because I got into it at, at such a young age and I was really, really lucky to have access to older wines, I had this habit of trying to understand what else was going on in the world during that year. So both from a weather perspective uh, to understand, hey, somebody says this is a good vintage. What is that really? Why? Is it just from taste? But what happened to 
to make it, you know, be a good or bad or, you know, terrible vintage. Um, so doing that research was just something that I always really connected with most. And then... Well, I, you open the book. Yeah. Isolating or talking specifically about the word vintage. Yeah. And it, that sort of sets the table, you know, for where you're going. You Definitely. You say, and you, you were getting into it. I want you to get into more. It's sort of like a time capsule. Yeah. You know, so you're drinking this cool wine at Frasca, and you're like, okay, this is a cool wine. I need to know more. Exactly. So th- now you get into the vintage, which is climate, co- you know, Everything. go ahead. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, there's also a lot of oral history around wines and whether that's, you know, chatter at a table or among sommeliers about producers or very specific vineyards within a certain vintage that are better than another one for this reason or that, that um, have also always been really interesting to me. And I, I thought that, you know what, maybe I'll try to compile some of the stories around vintages, around producers, around movements in wine that I have tried to make sense of. Right? And a lot of that is, frankly, the inception or the beginning of a certain property or winemaker and then you know documenting their 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 influence because i think how these people come about is is important and really sets the stage for for where they go um and then i also think you know there's been certain bottles that are notorious there's been certain uh, vintages that are just so exceptional that, you know, we think of a year and it's just great across everywhere. And why is that, that I found like, Hey, you know what? There's, there's a lot of questions that I get asked from customers in the restaurant that I feel like maybe in the form of a book are, uh, you know, just easier to to go in deeper, deeper with, you know, if anyone's into wine and they hear that they go, I'd love to get, you know, that perspective and all that. What you said sounds a little random relative to what the book is, which is very disciplined in the sense of vintages. I mean, you start at a timeline and you take us, you know, pretty much to current time. Yeah. I mean, when did you decide that, you know, I have all these sort of oral anecdotes I've read about stuff, you know, I've met yeah, people I've drank. I mean, you, you know, let me structure it this way. So answer that and, and explain to people, you know, how you have the book formatted. Definitely. So I think, you know, for me, there's in learning about wine, right. And I, and I, I this is, there's definitely knowledge to be gained from reading the book, but it's, it's not intended to be a kind of wine 101, like teach all if you know nothing about wine. Um, the how to drink that I wrote with Chris is, is so more So I said that. to you offline, I said this to me is not a how to drink or a what to drink. Wine. No. You know, it's more steeped into vintage, the stories around a culture. Yeah, you know. exactly. And I was hoping that, you know, you, you, you also don't need to know technical information to um, – appreciate nerdy the, crap. Her, her his, history of, of, of a certain um, bottle. And, and so I really wanted to, to try to use language and insights to where you could ideally read a story and maybe know nothing about wine and find the story itself 
an interesting story. Uh, and so talk about the setup. Yeah. So the setup, the chronology, the stories exactly. you're talking about are not long winded. No, know, no. They're, they're, they're brief. You picked a lot of things and I want to ask you how you pick those. You talk about them, but you do it in a chronologic way. Sure. So the with book, a sidebar, which I want yeah, to mention. Exactly. So I think the, the chronological part of it is, you know, it's not every single year, right? I didn't right. feel like that was necessary, nor would I, you know, be the authority to speak on bad vintages of the 20s. But the um, thing that I, I, I kind of came to terms with, it's like started out with a few stories that I knew I wanted to include. And then I was like, okay, so these are in different years. Let's, there's, there's a bit of foundation in terms of how those wines have succeeded that I believe is necessary. What were the early things buzzing around your head? Uh, The early things buzzing around were uh, the, and this was part of pitch to the, to the editor was the very tragic story of Soldera's wines getting poured out um, with the, you know, 2006 vintage being, being the last that he, he fully bottled with as, as Brunello. Um, that was an early one. The um, where we've come with Grower Champagne was which I was, want to talk to you about. Which was 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 so an these ear- are stories that resonated. One. These are stories that resonated with me. And then trying to understand, you know, I found people saying like, "Oh, this is a Grower Champagne," and seeing like blank faces on most consumers being like, "Cool, I don't really know what that means. Why does that matter to me?" <laughs> right and. Um, who started that and where did that really become and what what is it? So I think, you know, it made sense to, hey, let's like go back a little bit and talk about you know, how, how, how that happened. Um, and then also, you know, the story has been told so, so many times, but I do think for, you know, a larger audience, um, stories around bottlings during the war for me have always been really captivating. And I think, you know, World War II um, – really represented a huge shift for agriculture and technology and of course you know its impact on 1945 uh, um, yeah and and you know the through through that all I think for me there's a very like clear line of wine before and after that and um, I think you know I wanted to dive into that a little bit deeper but um, so it felt like I, I can't start talking about today without referencing the past. And because it does relate, hey, you know, you can't talk about Gros Champagne if you don't at least give a nod and mention to, all right, it's a reaction from what, right? It's a reaction from so these larger houses. Let's, and, let's yeah. get into sections and chapters. Sure. Let's talk about Champagne because, okay. you know, I want to get specific about that. Yeah, yeah. So the Champagne chapter section or whatever is very specific to a few things which you were just going to talk about. Yeah. A maker, the movement, the influence. Yeah, you know, yeah, So definitely. talk to me about, you know, all of those things. Yeah, I mean, we, we speak about Dom Perignon and Salon and, and you know, the blue chip, collectibles um, houses right houses yeah um that you know started out small and in, in their day too um but and then i think you know the 
I, I, I remember, and it still happens, um, for a long time, every new grower champagne that I would get introduced to, it felt like there was some nod to Salos, whether they interned at Salos, worked with Salos. You have to go back. You have to do two things. You have to talk about when Salos came on the scene, about what year was that, mid-late 80s. Yep. Kind of what he did. Yeah. You know, who he influenced. Yeah, exactly. Which is where you are now, but I need you to go backwards. Okay, sure. So I think, you know, to to get in that to get there though yeah to get there is is ultimately is is i was like okay so salos i really believe in a lot of ways has influenced this huge generation of grower champagne right of of and who all now have their own successes right but um salos being you know the one to really devote himself to the craft of grower champagne, um, meaning, of course, farming and producing it yourself. Versus a house pulling in from Versus a house buying all wine, stuff, buying right. grapes, et cetera, right. et cetera. Right. And um, giving the platform for, you know, these smaller winemakers to be able to sell their product directly to restaurants rather than to the big houses. Was that a big that, risk with, then no. for him to do that? Yeah, it was a big risk and that nobody really cared. Right. And, right. and the sales, you know, nowadays it's really, it's, it's much easier to be public if you're in, you know, a relatively remote part of France on an international scale than it was back in the eighties. Right. So I think it was a huge risk, but he did it, you know, for the purposes of, craft and quality and and his vision and and of course there's technical influence that Solos had in terms of winemaking style in terms of farming that was then learned by others that I believe you know not all grower champagne tastes like Solos absolutely not still say a, why because a very singular wine it's oxidative or how, yeah, how do you I mean, describe I it I think yes the nutty oxidative style of Salos is, is very um, specific. There's also, you know, if you have older Salos, it's not as, as oxidative as, you know, the, um, the wine and also, you know, some of the single vineyards and stuff that, that, that they put out now aren't substance, et cetera. So I feel like uh, the oxidative style isn't something I crave all the time. However, it is definitely uh, an exceptional it has a product. Place. It has a place. I do feel like we look at Salos just through that lens, whereas he was and still is a, a really exceptional winemaker um, beyond that style as well. And I and and I really do believe that. But um, you know that that then he really started the snowball for other people to be able to say, hey, you know what, I want to do that too. And now that has led us to this, frankly huge time to where there's so much champagne and so many different producers and and so many different styles and so much experimentation which i believe champagne really allows producers to experiment inherently through its process it's not necessarily about just purity and the expression of something there's you know a a, a timeline to it that is specific and and a process to it that inherently requires the winemaker to to make decisions that you know uh you don't have to make and still one right so 
um, I think, yeah, that, that, you know, for me, it was like backtracking. Hey, right now we're in this explosive moment of champagne to where you go to a rush, many, many restaurants and you don't see the big names anymore. Why is that? And how did that happen? Chronologically speaking, going back to, all right, cool. This is how it happened. All right. This was, uh, let's give credit to someone if we must for being the first person to, to at least really do it with a lot of success. And then that, you know, has led us to, to a point now to where we have, of course, um, really exceptional champagne. So there's three general blending grapes in uh, champagne, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier. Meunier yeah. You talk about it later in the book. Yeah. How, you know, I'm pretty sure it wasn't used as much and there wasn't a lot of Pinot Meunier only champagnes. Yeah, yeah. How has that changed? Yeah. So I think, you know, what I'm, this, I do believe this is one of the first books to talk about really old, old school Bordeaux and the foundation of that um, to addressing what's also going on today in terms of um, just common trends that you find in wine lists internationally in pretty wine-specific restaurants. And uh, Pinot Meunier nowadays is uh, very well represented um, one producer in particular, Prevo, who um, is you know connected to Salos as well, is right. is can give it a lot of credit because it just so exceptionally talented made a wine just using Pinot Meunier, um, and that to 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 now I think you have people requesting it, seeing it, being much more familiar with it. Um, than it ever happened before. And I think that's an interesting uh, notion, right? But we also have to look at, hey, cool, how did that happen, right? To, to where it now leads us to it. And who can we give some credit to, to really doing that? Because I think there's probably people, consumers out there, they're like, I didn't know that Pinot Meunier was an obscure champagne grape right. once upon a time. Um, <laughs> If, if you just got into it. And, and that's like a bit of my experience, frankly, was I started to get into wine when, you know, I remember going to a tasting where Terry Thies was there doing the road show with Grower Champagne. So for me, I, I had Grower Champagne before I had the great classic champagnes, right? right? So I also have to look at my experience. Hey, there's now a whole new generation of, of sommeliers who don't have access to wines that I had access to and I didn't have access to wines that other people had access to. Right. And that's okay. That's just our reality. (laughs) But how do we, you know, maybe like connect the dots of, Hey, these are the shoulders that some of the trends of today are, are really standing on. And, and I thought that's the goal of, this book, that's the goal of the wine list, well, is to give us a little bit of context. Hey, you might see Gros Champagne, you might see orange wine, you might see uh, these producers of Burgundy that are so new let, and in a different price let's point. Let's talk about How that. did that happen? Yeah. Um, so to stay on trend, as far as a trend, orange wine has been a thing for a little bit now. Sure. Um, there are some guys that, you know, for 30, 40 years have devoted their craft, guys like Grovner. Mm-hmm. And again, to your point, people may have no have, idea who Grovner is. Grovner yeah. or what region yeah. it sort of started, you know, in Italy on the border and all of that. Yeah. Um, 
so that aside, the the wine is still resonating with people. Oh, for why, sure. You know, why? How did that thing come out of? Yeah, I think I've learned a lot about orange wine in the last two years in, from a consumer standpoint. Um, or, sorry. Just from, talking, absorbing, listening? Yeah, exactly. So my experience with orange wine was at Frosca, um, which is a restaurant based on Friuli, where Grovner, you know, uh, Zitterich, uh Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, um, really came from right uh, Grovner being, I think the the first to commercialize the style of orange wine again, right in contemporary times, as it's a style that has been made for a very long time. He will tell you that as well. <clears throat> the um, amount of orange wine that you know to give some insight when we first opened Charlie Bird. It was when the rosé boom was was happening, right? Um, and now I think in certain within certain demographics, there's more orange wine being consumed than rosé, and it's being consumed in a similar way to rosé in terms of inexpensive, by the glass, just everyday drinking type type product. Right. And that is something that I didn't know up until a couple years ago. We opened Parcel in a, frankly, in a neighborhood that has a younger demographic within it. Um, and orange wine last year was the wine we sold the most of by the glass. To give you an idea, at Charlie Bird, we, we, we sold almost no orange wine. Um, that's how quickly it's changed and how quickly it's become popular. I'm for it, although I'm, I'm not one. But to it becomes popular. Because it's a thing, right? Not yeah, necessarily because of the history. And I think or do this, people understand that it's a skin con you know, how did it yeah, get orange? But or, I I mean listen, I'm I'm of the mindset that natural wine, orange wine, um, whatever, right? If that is the gateway for I'm people fine. to then get into other wines, um, I'm all about it. Now, do I drink a ton of orange wine myself? No. Um sometimes I would crave it if it's really hot outside and I'm having a certain type of food. Are people whatever. drinking it all year round? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, but the more than rosé. Oh yeah, yeah, it crushed rosé okay. for us here, and I don't think that's happening everywhere, right. right? But it it is happening. We just did a wine list at uh, an airport lounge. We put a orange wine on there, K- killing it. Well, I don't know. I don't know the depletions yet, but it was like that would have never happened. Oh right, the five fact years. Of but the fact that it on like, there, cool, yeah. we can. Yeah. We probably should do this because there's there's so much demand for it. So yeah, I think my expectation isn't that everybody should know about Grovner if you're just having a glass of orange wine. But I do think if you look at it, you're like, cool, what like you took, how did this happen? You took the time, which is a theme of the book. Yeah, is like how did this happen and what started orange wine, right? Or you know, I wait. Think, didn't the Sutters invented in Napa when they left the uh, white wine on the skins too long? I don't know that it's story, not a dissimilar story. Okay, people will kill me for bringing it up, but yeah. it's a stupid story. Why that pink Zinfandel or whatever oh, came about? Yeah. I guess that's true. Yeah, <laughs> right. But um, I think yeah, that that was it. And I, you know, the reality is, is it's I don't see it going anywhere anytime really? soon. No, maybe it'll be a, it'll certainly be a trend, but is there a lot of crap out there? 
yeah, there's a ton of bad orange wine. I think for me, the biggest like disclaimer on natural wine and, and a winemaker friend once said this, it's like there are natural quote unquote wines that market themselves as natural wines out there that aren't farming organically that probably have a whole bunch of sulfur um, that are really just like riding the wave. And I think it's dangerous. Food the, is like that too. Yeah, they slap like natural on a yeah, bar. Exactly. It's terrible. You know, so I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff that tastes bad. And then there's also a lot of stuff that's, that's um, just poorly made. But if you, you know, do the work or go to the right, right. spots, there's, there's good ones. Which to, you should for everything. And I feel like that's all. our responsibility is to try to do that for consumers. And we don't like scream about it, but we really try to do the work to make sure, hey, this isn't, you know, just a white labeled like right. nonsense garbage that otherwise would have gone in like a slot machine Chardonnay. Right. So, All right. Let's go more traditional. Let's jump to Burgundy. Sure. Uh, you know as well as I do from your background, from writing the book, that Burgundy has become less accessible for some of the names we yeah. crave. Extraordinarily expensive. Yeah. Um, there's this whole, I don't know if elitism is the right word, whether it's these expensive dinners, fairs, you know, auctions where the bottle prices are through the roof. Yeah. So the average guy ain't touching that. Yeah. But one of the nice things you do in the book, you talk a lot about, you know, traditional burgundies. Yeah, of course. But you talk, tell me about the chapter where it's really focused on the new producers and what they're making, which kind of answers the accessibility or quality issue, you know, that I initially brought up. Yeah. No, I think it's... It's a really exciting time in Burgundy. I was there. Uh, I try to go once a year. I was there this past fall, um, which, granted, I had a great trip, but it just as a disclaimer, it's it's not the best time to go to Burgundy. Um, but the why? It's just so busy, and winemakers right. are you like, want more? They're just coming off the guys harvest. more relaxed. It, yeah, it just right, feels like a, a kind of a self serving time to be there. Yeah. But the um, it's really beautiful and etc. But it's just if you really want to like get into it, you should go when the weather's bad and nobody has anything to do. Right. But the um there's this generation of largely younger winemakers. Um some are winemakers who are I believe getting recognized <clears throat> within this generation, but maybe have been doing it in the sort of outskirts of the prime part of Burgundy for a long time. Um, and I, you know, I, if I think about it in a way we went for a long time, I was like, Hey, what's the, what's the accessible version of Burgundy? It was Beaujolais, it was then the Jura. And now it's Burgundy, but other parts of Burgundy that people weren't making great wine in for so a long time. So pick off some of the regions like Machinay or. Yeah. Like Machinay, I think in and around, um, you know, uh, Marange is an area, Savigny Le Bon, the Oak Cote, Cote Nui, uh, Village, uh, you know. A lot of Bone, the people you write even, about and talk yeah, about are. Yeah, just um, certain vineyards within, you know, places that aren't uh, totally A list. So younger people might have access to those grapes and to those contracts. Um, I don't think <coughs> most of them aren't 
necessarily buying land. Maybe they're buying a little plot here and there. But it's uh, it's a pretty cool time for it. Is this generational, like existing wine families, or these are new people getting into um, it, or a little of both? I think I think it's strangely, it's a lot of like foreigners getting into right. it. It seems. Um, but there's also some generational shifts as well uh, that, you know, I, I think have, have happened um, lately. That's all to say is, like, I really believe the, the blue chip burgundy producers of today, I, you know, we, we can't um, be upset at them for the increase in prices across the board. It's the, not really them. It's not them. They're really so think, farmers. And I think, I think it's... It's the reality is, is like Burgundy is very different than most other wine regions in that it's super limited. We're talking about, you know, um, hundreds of bottles in certain instances, not tens of thousands, let alone hundreds of thousands of bottles. And so inherently, you know, there's just a supply issue. And if somebody really wants it, there's a natural, you know, effect to that. Right. So I think where this has led us is, and and I do believe that like there is a hierarchy of quality within Burgundy that should continue to be respected and and is is just definite in my mind. However, there are delicious wines um, who, you know, that frankly some of them have also started to get really expensive, um, even if they're from pieces of land that aren't necessarily considered to be really expensive, but there's really, really just exceptional wine that's being made, um, in other parts of Burgundy as well. And we highlight a handful of those producers. Right. It's one of the, not the few, but it's a section where you list. Yeah. You could walk away from that section and go, you know what? He recommended eight, nine people. You know, I can go and try it. Um, As I mentioned, there's 65 plus sections in this. You know, we can't get to all of them. We described a lot of them. But let's touch on one last one because you write about it. There's some redundancy in this topic in a good way. Climate change and wine. It's hard to, it's hard for me to do a podcast, talk to winemakers or wine or writers and not talk about climate change. Yeah, of course. Um, So, Tell me about the significance. One of the ways you kind of launch it is a year that sort of epitomized this change, 2003. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell me, you know, why that and what happened. And then you talk about some of the specific things, uh, specific effects that are, you know, um, uh, that winemakers are are experiencing and and how some of them are adopting. Yeah, definitely. For me, it's the most important and fascinating dilemma with within the wine industry right now um i i don't know nobody knows right where where this will go but it has had a huge huge effect um 2003 is a really easy year to say hey this is let's just this is when it really like smacked everybody in the face um it was an incredibly hot year there uh, at the time it was the earliest harvest. Of course, since then all of those records have been shattered, uh, as is you know the trend outside of wine. <laughs> um, and I think what what we're starting to see already is a uh, the impact on flavor that climate change has had. Uh, so 
you know, I was with a winemaker who we were tasting an old wine and got sort of emotional <laughs> in that she was saying that, you know, this wine will just, we'll never be able to make this wine um, again because of the climate. And that's a reality, right? And, um, you know, we're not going to change that. So I think we went to this to this place of, for a long time, everybody wanted bigger wines, darker wines, juicier wines. <laughs> and now we Parker want type wine. lighter wines, higher acid wines, right? Wines that represent something that is um, harder for winemakers to achieve because climate change gives us the opposite. Warmer weather gives us the opposite of that. And then I also, I think it's just, you know, it's devastating. A vintage like 2021 in Burgundy where you have uh, certain vineyards that are just demolished outright, 100%, right. 75% Was that because of pre-season? <laughs> just extreme weather. Or, yeah, right. exactly. Extreme weather. Um, and, you know, frost, hail, et cetera. Right. And, and So um, how are some of these guys going to adopt? I, I don't think you can. I think, I think there's some varietals plant higher up i don't know i think i think we're just going to experience a, a change of it i think burgundy is just going to be a different place in 20 years and we'll we might be uh I, we already are looking at like vintages of the past having flavors and having that winemaker know. nailed it yeah right? and, you're not going to see this again you know you just don't see it again and and i think um you know there's it's just wine just going to continue to taste different year over year. And for a long time, people are like, oh, they snubbed vintages like 2019, vintages like 2018, or sorry, not 2019, 2009, 2018, which are, you know, like dark, juicy, big wines. But the reality is, is like that, I don't think that's going anywhere. Now, yeah, a 2009 doesn't taste the same way that uh, 2010 does, right? And, right. and do I have a preference for one or the other? For well, that's sure. vintage. But like you know. we, I do believe that we need to to uh, embrace the quality of wine every year. Of course, we can have favorites, but is to try to find you know some pleasure in the wine um, if the fact is, is that the weather is going to continue to change around us. So we, our, our sensitivity should, should well, be informed by that. It's funny how you said people who drink Mounier only champagne didn't realize, you know, that it wasn't a thing years ago and orange yeah, wine where it came from. There's going to be a generation that's only drinking climate changed wines. Mm -hmm. You know, it'll be from yep. 2003 on, 100%. which is an interesting thing. Yeah. hundred percent. All right. There's a lot of other, uh, you know, great chapters, specific wines, you know, like you said earlier, you know, you chose them. Um, all right. Before I let you leave, we're going to do the wine list. All right. You're going to answer five questions spontaneously. You're not going to dwell on them. I got to get out of here. I got to get you out of here. So the first question is in your travels, because all you are around is wine, wine people. Yep. What are you drinking now? What's in your fridge? What are you curious about? What do you have to taste stuff for the restaurants? Seasonal changes? What are you drinking now? What Give me I, a few things. What am I drinking right now? Um, that's a great question. I am drinking a lot of champagne. I'm, I'm learning about sake. 
Okay. Um, I'm drinking a lot of... So champagne, I would assume, ramped up through the years where you drink champagne more and more. Sake you're adding because it's something you want to get better at in serving. Yeah, Yeah, and I I just want to learn about it. Okay. Um, This is more like professional tasting stuff terms of hey where 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 are we getting presented with a lot of new right um and i think those are you know those areas are 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 really interesting um because if i'm sitting down at dinner and drinking something for not as a professional but just as a wine drinker and wine consumer um i'm i'm quite stayed in what i enjoy so I tend to drink the same thing okay. uh, time, time, Not time, time, time again, um, only because, you know, I, whatever, if I'm sitting down, I, I want to no, ensure that the, I really enjoy it. No, I get I that. I leave the exploration yeah, you, for... Yeah, you get only so many shots. You want yeah, to do during, it right most during, of the time, the right? Day, so I hate to be like, I just, you know, All right, try second. to drink a lot of Burgundy and, and go from there. But the wines that I, I think, you know, we're, we're really seeing a lot of are there's ton, still today, there's a ton of new champagne producers coming out. Um, there's a few sake portfolios that are really exciting. And, um, you know, frankly, it's just something I know absolutely nothing about, well, but in time it, uh, it's, it's happening. And, uh, yeah. That's and always burgundy. All right. Second question. Goofiest one of the batch favorite wine and food pairing, not what you think a good one is, but what you like. And obviously it's not something you eat that often. Um, what do, what do I really love? Food and wine pairing. Um, I will and we say, have a rule. You can't say champagne and oysters on this no, show. No, 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 no. That's fine. Um, I really like, uh, let's say. Um, I mean, what works? Yeah. I think for me, um, so like crab leg, shrimp cocktail, and a lighter, younger style of white burgundy is something I will always crave. So nobody's ever given me that one. Okay. So I like that. All right. So crab legs. That's, crab legs. That's because you're a fancy guy. Anything I get that. crab. Oh, and yeah. Then, I mean, if you're... T- and you know. then, like, give me... Get specific here. Give me a producer or, you know, a region on the white burgundy. That makes oh, sense for that. That makes sense for that, <laughs> for that style. I think, you know, some of the kind of saltier style of of, of white burgundy and, and Chablis that's coming around, but... Um, so say the wine, the white wines are Aligote of okay. Chantrev, um, for example, if you have that Great with producer. like, you know, uh, a kind of umami laden crab dish, you're feeling really good about yourself. So. What if you're not a big baller like you? Would Muscadet no. work with that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's, I mean, listen, right, Aligote so- is not, not. Yeah, no, no, I know, totally I know, and I want people to realize yeah, that yeah, Aligote yeah. is one of the regions we talked about yeah, being sort of on the yep. outskirts with great producers. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, I didn't mention we post all these. You know, people like to hear what okay, the cool. uh, people who do this for a living are drinking. I'm sure you get out and about, but not as much because you get stuck here. But I want you to tell me favorite wine restaurant and or bars. And we talked about a bunch earlier. Oh, man, it's hard to not just repeat. But (laughs) I want to say that 
you're not doing a ranked list. You're sure. not doing a complete list. I just want you to throw out a few places that do it well. And if it's repetitive of what we said, fine. Because I don't want people coming up to you and saying, hey, I heard that podcast. How come you didn't mention me? Oh, yeah. Because the guy <laughs> who interviewed you said you're not going to mention everyone. But who does it right? Okay. You, I'll say you do it right here. Oh, thank we you. We talked about, you know, the food, the thought to the food. You know, you have a oh, real chef. You. You know, the wine selection, the vibe, the knowledge. You know, if one of the people sitting here asks your people, hey, what's going on with this? They can answer that. Yeah. Who else is doing that? Well, on Friday night, I went out with my girlfriend and two friends. And um, we tried to get into Four Horsemen and Claude. And we got a table at Claude, so we went to Claude. But if that's any testament, I think those are two, you know, for me – two of the most exciting restaurants. I think the food um, at the Nortwick is really exceptional and a huge wine list there too, That's run by Cedric. Cedric yep. from really, 11 Madison. Really, really great. King is still, and these are all New York-centric places, uh, King is is still you know a, a go-to a restaurant that, that I really, really I crave. I like her wine list. Um, and Jem, I think, you know, they just reopened. Um, I think Flynn is just someone who's from a culinary perspective is really on top of it right now and, and making really exceptional um, food. And there's usually a handful of producers that I don't know. They're more, which um, is, yeah, best, which, is, right? which is always fun. So you can uh, try some stuff out there, but all right, so say no more. Those are all good ones. That's good. All right. And that's not your rank list. Those are just some of the things, sure, yeah, yeah. you know, inevitably they'll be in New York cause you spend most of the time here and some are kind of neighborhoody, you know, some yeah, are far or whatever. Yeah, I, don't, um, I mean, location, not, you know, touch. All right. Fourth question. Yep. Favorite all time wine. When I first, started asking this question to guys like Aldo Som. I wanted to know, hey, what's the most expensive rare wine you ever tasted? Oh, yeah. Certainly, I don't care about that anymore. And everybody <laughs> oh, has. Okay. Here's what I care about. What What is favorite all-time wine because of how it influenced you? Was it a gateway? It yeah. transcended you, changed the way you thought. Do you have a wine or two that's important like to you? Like a specific producer? Yeah. Or? Okay. And time. And, like and, I was at Froskin the first time I ever tasted, you know, oh, wines yeah. from for you with stories like that sure. were important. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, I favorite all time wine. Well, there's so many like experiences that I don't even remember the producer, frankly. But that's okay. The first time I had like the pairing of, and I sound like just a, a snobby jerk here, but of white truffles and uh barolo was at frosca they served, you don't remember the barolo i don't remember it they just poured me something by the glass but was he that was that was, was he just experimental like, and were carrying great producers that people didn't know of, or oh, yeah, he had a line sure. of the you know vietti always and, always and trying to i think you know if there's great wine in colorado that the team at frosca is uh can take a lot of credit for bringing it there um through you know through their importer friends um, that was great. And, you know, truthfully, like having um, the wines of Jean-Louis Chave um, continually, it's just such an impressive history. Um, the people who run it today are exceptional. Do you go and to uh, I've been the a Northern Rhone? You said you I've go been to a couple times. Burgundy yeah, I've, been, I've been lucky time. to go a couple times. 
but um, you know, for me, there's there's just great, yeah, great, no great, argument, um, yeah. no argument. Wines there of many different vintages that I always you know find myself uh, craving and have a lot of fond memories around drinking a Gabala shop. Well, one is a producer that historically and recently you can't go wrong with vintages sure. and, and, you know, different wines. The other is a region and a type of wine, Piedmont, the food, indigenous truffles, and yeah. Barolo. Yeah, so, I just think if you're like, hey, this is where, for me, the dots started Those connect. are good ones. So. Um, last question, yeah. and I want you to, if you can't answer this, no one can. Because this is zero <laughs> straight up in your wheelhouse, okay? okay. So you got to be good at this. The question is, I want you to recommend to me the best wine retail around 15, 20, 22 bucks. I want a red. I want a white. In those specific categories or just in general? Anything red, anything white. You, okay. you can give me cat, like Muscadet, the right producer is a good value, right? Okay. That's like a tip off to an answer okay but i want because th this is what you do retail this is you know so my kids are in their late 20s they can't go to a party with yep. supermarket wine they can't afford 45 bucks for a gift or a dinner yep. so how do you wow at 18 20 and for white and red yep okay so wowing at 18 bucks uh, 20 22 the, that range. Yeah. I don't have to. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was like, that's a pretty tight window. Well, um, that's why you got to figure this out. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think for me, the greatest value in wine right now is from Spain. Okay. I think the uh, white wines from the northwestern part of Spain, so call it um, Albarino, Godeo, are just really, really exceptional and of really like great value. And I think the there's unique uh, characteristics to the wines, but also they serve a purpose of just having a refreshing glass of white wine, which at, you know. And thoughtful producers at, making yeah, a bunch of Yeah, of course. Of you know, it's so made that, well. That wasn't hard. I'll, I'm not sweating it. Yeah, okay. that was good. Um, any <laughs> other white suggestion? Or I could close the book on that one. Does uh, anything else? And then for me, one my, like, favorite all-time inexpensive white is Fiano Avellino from Italy. Um, Italy. I think, you know, a handful of producers, um, but for me, that's if I see it on a wine list, and I, even if I don't know the producer, chances are I'm gonna always enjoy it. It's a little well, smoky, it's really refreshing. Same deal. So good, good, cheap ones. Italian white and Spanish white. Good. Now jump to red. Jump to red. Yeah, red, red is red's sometimes a little harder <laughs> to get into that price range. Red's harder to get into that price range. I do think that uh, again in Spain, but also in the southern part of France. You know, for a long time, that was sort of like this ring of fire of kind of darker Grenache-based wines. Um, but I think nowadays, you know, a lot of really good value is and quality is coming from there. We get presented with a lot of Grenache um, from Spain and also from, you know, southern part of France. Yep. Um, so and that they could be gets different. Like, uh, yeah, exactly. A little bit more producer-specific. But um, I think, you know, for me, if there's uh, wine from the southern part of France or – from Spain and it's a red and look for lower alcohol. So call it, you know, 14% and under, um, I would, uh, I would bet on that. So 
Good ones. I like the the varietal. Cool. All right, we're wrapping up the show. We're going to do this quickly. <laughs> Thank you so much. No. We do a thing called the weekly wine sip. Every week we taste a different wine. Usually okay. when I have a producer, it's okay. fun to drink his wine. Yeah. When I'm at a restaurant or a retailer, what represents. So I said, Grant, pick a bottle of wine. You picked, tell me what you picked. The I picked the 2019 Vietti Castiglione. All right, grab it. All right. Why did you pick this wine? Um, Let me I, say that again. Why did you pick this wine? <laughs> I picked this wine because I think whoop, this is a wine um, made by a wonderful person. The winery has a long, long history of making great wine. And um, Italian wine was very much my gateway into uh, wine. I lived in the larger region where Barolo is in Piemonte. Um, so for me, Barolo, Nebbiolo was, I would say, not Barolo. Nebbiolo was, uh, which is, to get back, a good value to look for, Nebbiolo, um, was, yeah, really just an early wine that I was like, cool, I smell something in this that's not just wine. It reminds me of a certain place. And I think for me, Vietti has just been one of the great winemakers uh, in the Castiglione from them. Castiglione it, is a vineyard select area. Re- Castiglione is a uh, sub-region uh, within Barolo. Right. This is a blend of many different single vineyards. In Castiglione? Exactly. Yep. Um, and um, Do they own the vineyards or are they, they contract? Own the vineyards. They own the vineyards. These are all Vietti vineyards. These are Vietti vineyards. Mixed. Yep. Blended, I mean. Farms, blended, et cetera. And Luca and Elena uh, are just wonderful winemakers. The news is out that they are not involved in Vietti anymore. So I, I do uh, think that part of, you know, in writing the book is there's these periods of, of where wineries have their moment and then maybe they get sold off and things change from a quality perspective. Um, I hope, I, I know that the wines will not be as great so going forward, they're to. out, out. I mean, not consulting or making. I I don't want to speak on on yet, but it's out there. Yeah. People can yeah, read yeah, about yeah. it. It's not, that's so. It's, I don't. It's I'm not trying two to tell that story. Things if going yeah. forward, it's no, not no. that. I, it's uh, but um, I believe they're they're out, out going on to to do something else. But the uh, yeah. So that's all to say. I think Vietti of the 2019 and older. <laughs> Um, was 19 the cutoff year? Era. I, it's hard to say. I can't, yeah. again, I don't, I don't yeah. want to, I'm not a authority of, of what was going on there, but, um, I would, you know, I think the wines are, are really, so just, just quickly Barolo, a style of Barolo that's the, easy to drink. The without color is, you know, kind of a purple translucent, right? It's pretty dark in here too. So it's, yeah. you know, yeah. What's, little, what's the, the, the traditional nose descriptors in um, Barolo. And- uh, black ri- licorice, fresh raspberries, fresh strawberries, roses. So red, um, rose, rose, right. Yeah, I think it's more about being floral and fruity uh, aromatically and maybe a little bit of like kind of spice to it. Um, but then palette-wise is it is very like – savory and bright and uh so you know not, palette, not a th- savory bright do any of the nose descriptors carry into yeah, the for palette? sure i would say on the palate the, the, the fruit fruits. is maybe a little bit 
tartar and and uh, lighter than how it presents aromatically. And the mouthfeel is always kind of a medium, right? It's never. Yeah. I, I think mean, this I, wine is. You know, I've I've had older bottles of Castiglione, but I think for me, it's a wine that drinks well young now. So it's it's not it's not like painfully tannic. Right. Um, it's right. it's you know pretty. Does that vary some. vintage by vintage? For sure, or, right. tannins are really affected by yeah by heat. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, so that's the 2019 Viette Castellone. You serve that here? We do, yeah. By the glass or bottle? We have it by the glass right now. Okay. Yeah. All right, we got to wrap up, Grant. Thank you. Get you out of here. Appreciate it. <laughs> Let me do a quick wrap up. I want to get some info, and we're out of here in a minute. So, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. Leave a review if you're enjoying the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at sbenruby and on Twitter at benruby, two different handles. But you can always find us with the hashtag The Grape Nation. We're on Facebook at The Grape Nation. As I mentioned, we will post Grant's wine list answers, some good recos there, and I'll uh, do a recap of the wine we tasted. Uh, Grant, where's the best place to find more info on Parcel? Parcelwine.com. Make a reservation down here. What do we do? Parcelwine.com. You can find out about the wine bar, see some of the inventory that we have available for delivery, read a little bit. What about social media handles? We are, are, you at on, are you Pars- on? We're at Parcel Wine. I'm, I'm P-A-R-C-E-L-L-E not. P A R C E L L E W I N E. Okay. Yep. Um, and I'm personally is, not active on social media. Is but. that the store and the restaurant? That's everything. Okay. Yep. And then the site is parcelwine.com. Okay. All right. I want to thank, thank Grant Reynolds um, for talking about the You're book, the which is interesting. Where can we get the book? Uh, you can get a go to your local bookseller. Yeah, if you can't go there, ask, where ask for Amazon? Don't get it. Uh, Barnes and Noble. And Barnes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's where you can get the book. Um, thank you to Grant Reynolds. Thank you to our engineer Armin and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to the Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.